Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello sports fans and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host Dana Augusta and I'm grateful to have you on taking time out of your busy day or evening or night to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. And coming up on this episode of the program, we're going to be talking with author and sports history researcher Dan Sisko who has a new book out called California Sports Astounding, and it talks about the long and cherished and diverse sports history of the state of California. Everything from all of the major sports, football, basketball, baseball, and hockey, but also some of the niche sports such as skateboarding, surfing, all of that, badminton, wherever you have, all that that transpired within the state of California. That's in our main event. Later in the program, we're going to be having our top five, and since this is Super Bowl week, we're going to be taking a look at my top five all-time favorite Super Bowl moments. That's in our top five. And later in the last part of the show, which we call our shout-out, we're going to be taking a shout-out to, we're going to be taking a trip back, however, to January the 29th of 1995. A day which for me started out with so much hope and promise. And by the end of the evening, it ended up being the loneliest night of my life that story with our top five and also our interview with dan cisco coming up on this episode of the historically speaking sports podcast a proud member of the sports history network we here at the sports history network proudly partner with 26 podcasts all revolving around the history of sports but did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows it's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. And we're back, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. And right now we have on... 
the man that is known as the California sports guy. He's a researcher of sports history and is a lifelong sports fan, especially in the state of California. He is Dan Sisko, and he is the author of the new book, California Sports Astounding, Fun, Unknown, and Surprising Facts from Statehood to Sunday. And this is a book about sports history of the state of California. Now, it's not just about the, you know, just regular sports of basketball, football, baseball, hockey, that sort of thing. But it has a whole lot of different sports in it. He talks about miniature golf. He talks about karate. He talks about gymnastics. He talks about badminton. And we're not talking about just within the last, oh, 50 years. This guy goes all the way back to the 1850s and 1830s and stuff, which I truly find fascinating. And so, Mr. Don, Dan Sisko, he's on with us. Dan, glad to have you aboard. Hey, yeah, uh, thanks, Dana. Appreciate it. Now, you talk, now, in this book right here, you talk about a whole lot of different sports. And the way you have it set up, I really like because it kind of parallels what I do here on my podcast, which is I go day by day as far as like what happened, what great sports event or whatever happened on this sort of day and you do the same thing in your book you go pretty much from january 1st all the way through december 1st with little tiny sports nuggets of what happened on this certain this certain day in california sports history and i find that fascinating i find that utterly intriguing and what gave you this idea what inspired you to write a book like this well you know i i've I've been a a lifelong sports fan uh, growing up in san diego and uh, later on as, as a career, I ended up being a, a librarian doing lots of research for customers and that. So I thought I'd kind of combine the two and uh, put together a book um, that covers the history because we didn't really have one in California. And this is from statehood, which is 1850, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we tried to do is um, tackle uh, each sport and find out the very first appearance, the very first uh, tennis match, the very first uh, triathlon competition or go-kart race or surfing or, you know, what have you. So it was a lot of fun, and I met a lot of interesting people along the way. What were some of the interesting stories that, you know, while doing your research, you said that you met a lot of interesting people. Was there any one particular person or one particular incident or event that happened in California sports history that you just you just could not get enough of well you know you know there's um it's kind of it's kind of interesting um this event uh happened February 7th and today's February 5th so we're gonna several days away (laughs) but um anyway Lisa Leslie the woman's basketball player uh, grew up in Compton, California, and she went to Morningside High School in Inglewood. And on this day, February on February 7th, 1990, she scored a national record 101 points wow. in a half of basketball. In That's one insane. half. <laughs> in one half. Not only that. It was done in, in in 16 minutes. It wasn't even a complete half. And they called the game at that point. They kind of said, you know what? We've got to institute a mercy rule here. But, I mean, what she did, and, of course, she went on to this amazing career. 
uh, USC All-American. Then she won four gold medals for the women's um, uh, Olympic team, uh, on and on and on. WNBA, all-time all-star. But uh, to me, I still can't get over what she did in less than a half and just an amazing performance. Um, one thing I found very interesting is that she was left-handed, but it, when she was start, starting to learn the sport of basketball, um, I guess the coaches were favoring the right-handed players to begin with. Right. And she just taught herself to become ambidextrous. And so she could play, you know, decisively with either her left or right hand. And and that just took her to superstardom. But I thought that was really cool how she just, you know, saw a challenge and she just overcame it. And then, but that's crazy. I, I don't care what kind of level of basketball, 101 points. Isn't it? That's just, that's just crazy. See, I, scoring 101 points and a half is, is it. And to be completely honest, I was in high school in 1990. I was a senior in high school in Louisiana. And oh. until you told me that, I I didn't know that. I really did not know that. And this is the type of the stuff that you will find in your book. I mean, just <laughs> stuff like that. Um, yeah, you know, she had a, you know, she had a teammate who she had uh, one other person on her team scored that day. And they scored one point on a free throw. And they ended up calling the game. With Morningside having a grand total of 102 points, and so anyway, you know what I mean. That's that's the the craziness of it all. But uh, but yeah, um, but you've had some great uh, basketball players come out of Louisiana. Shoots, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, everybody talks about. Even though he's not a native of Louisiana, the first person everybody thinks of when about basketball is Pete Maravich. Though he's not a native of Louisiana, but he's Pretty much, we've adopted him as far as Louisiana. Of course, you got guys like Bill Russell and no, he's not. Reed and you know all adopt you know and on and on and on. Um, you know Bob Love and you know those guys. You know on and on and on and on. Um, but the state of California, and to be honest, you know even though I am a native of Louisiana and currently live in Atlanta. I am a Chargers fan. I have a soft spot for the Sacramento Kings, also a soft spot for that for the Oakland A's, you know, especially during the Bash Brothers days of the late of the 80s and early 90s. Oh, yeah. uh, those great Sacramento Kings teams, I'm still hurt by, you know, when they lost to the Lakers in that controversial game 7. I'm still hurt by that, but Oh yeah, that was that <laughs> was a, everyone was pulling for the Kings cuz we knew the Lakers were going to come back and still win many more titles in that decade anyway. But the Kings felt it was like, this is their time. This is the one chance that they could pull it out. And man, it it was a, it was a brutal series. (laughs) And uh, yeah. And speaking of the Lakers, um, the Lakers are in the news because LeBron James is set to break Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time scoring record. And I was curious about this of a person being from California and has been following California sports for, for many, many years as you have, how do you feel about someone? Yeah. The, the record is going to be broken by a Laker technically, but he's not really a quote unquote true Laker because he played most of his career in Miami and Cleveland. 
you know, but it's still going to be a, I guess you can consider a Laker record. You know, how do you feel about that? Well, it's, you know, I, I, I give him, um, you know, uh, congratulations. I mean, he's, he's had guys double and triple team him. He's had the grind of putting in 18, 19, 20 years in the NBA. And he just ended up on a few different teams. I, I think if you and I were in his situation, you're towards the end of your career. This guy's thinking he, he, he's, he's very shrewd, very smart, because he's trying to set himself up for his post-career. Yes. So, he, hey, why, why not the entertainment capital of, of America, right? So he's figuring, hey, I'll go to L.A. I, I can meet people in the movie industry and, and media and all this kind of stuff. So he just ended up here. Um, but, yeah, it, it's okay because, you know, nowadays these, these guys, it, it's very rare for them to play for just one team their whole career. I mean, I look at Bill Russell. You know, he came from Monroe, Louisiana. Yep. And and then he moved out to California in time for high school. And then you know, we kind of claim him because he spent so much time. That's where he made his mark at the University of San Francisco. McClyman's high and school. What a lot of people. That, it was teammates of, um, of Frank Robinson. The well, he, he had a, um, uh, yeah, and he had Casey Jones as playing San- basketball with him. At, at U.S. at the University of San Francisco. And what a lot of people forget is that Bill Russell was an outstanding world-class high jumper. He was trying to decide between track and basketball. And thankfully for all of us, he chose basketball and the rest is history. Now, I mean, that would be interesting because considering this, you know, he was a high jumper, in, in, you know, when he was at USF. But also at Kansas, there was another high jumper named Will Chamberlain. And can you imagine that Olympic trials when <laughs> Russell and Will go up for the high jump? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's crazy. And I guess California has an unfair advantage. I mean, after all, we you know, we have the largest population. We've got about 40 million people that live here and and all that. But I just tried to make this book with as much um uh, variety. Um it has sixty five over sixty-five men's and women's sports and uh, the main thing is is to give recognition to a lot of these other sports that normally wouldn't get that um but yeah but it, it's just the variety and that's what makes it fun you know you you talk about you see different sports throughout the year and it's amazing when you find out where you know the origin origins where they come from and all that now, you, now, I mean, there are a lot of interesting stories in this book. What is the one story that, that you find personally interesting that you just can't get enough of other than, you know, we talked about basketball. We talked about all the people that came from California and the Lisa Leslie. You know, what were some of the things, the, the process in which you had to go through in order to research all of this? Because you have some things here in this book that goes back a long ways. Well, the main thing for me is I, I wanted to contribute to knowledge, and I thought the best way to do this is to document it from statehood onward. I mean, there's a lot of other things that happened well before that, but that's another that's another book for another author. But I just thought um, for California's history, as a history book in general, I thought it would be great to tackle it from 
from statehood onward and see if we could find out the very first baseball game or find out the very first competition. Um, and then from there, throw in a few tidbits, um, some famous uh, you know, birthdays or maybe notable events uh, that happened on a particular day. I mean, we've had the Olympics, you know, three times already. Yes. And, and, and now we're poised to host it again in 2028. That's only five years away. That's not that far away. Right. Um, so we're Los Angeles is getting excited to host it again. I mean, you, I mean, for those who listen, you had, you had the Olympics in L.A. twice in 1932 and 1984. You had it, the Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley in 1960. Um, it, those are the three times that they've had the Olympics in the state. Um, what were some stories that that you had that didn't make the book? You know, that, you know, since you were in Hollywood, since you're in Southern California, Hollywood's right there you know, they ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. So were there any stories that you that, that you had in your hopper, so to speak, but didn't quite make the book for whatever reason? Well, there's probably, I mean, shoots, there's probably five or 10 sports that I started to tackle, you know, that I didn't squeeze into the book because I couldn't verify um, you know, some important information. But one example is, is like skateboarding, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you want to guess just overall the the official state sport of California? Ooh, I, I, if, if it was California, you know, just off the top of my head, being someone from the South and thinking of California, the official game of California, I probably would say surfing. You got it. You you won the winner today. <laughs> I would say I was. Well, say you're you're right on the money. But the thing is, what's interesting is that um, Maryland has uh, <laughs> lacrosse or jousting. As, they have jousting as their official state sport. But anyway, in California's case, there was a lot of people that came forward and said, "Hey." Well, wait, maybe skateboarding should be the official sport because there's more people that skateboard and enter skateboard competitions than there are surfers. The thing is, the California has all these surfers, but not everyone lives close, close enough to the beach. True. So all these people that live in the Central Valley or the Sierra Nevadas or other areas, they, you know, they're too far away from the beach, but they do the next best thing, which is skateboarding. And I found out that the first skateboard contest happened in 1963, but I, I need to verify the, the, the facts, the information, because there's a lot of incomplete stuff on the internet, um, wrong information that hasn't been verified and people regurgitate it. And I want proof. I want the original source, the original newspaper article, magazine article, book excerpt, whatever, that actually proves it. And uh, so, yeah, I have to admit, skateboarding, I need to do a little bit more. Um, but I did put Tony Hawk in here. You know, that's America's, you know, most famous skateboarder. And he he was included in the book um, in a few other areas. Um, but anyway, yeah, skateboarding is, is cool. And it went up to the state legislature. They had a vote. 
and surfing one, and that's great. I mean, it, it's it's just an amazing sport. It was introduced here by some Hawaiian princes, which were on vacation in Santa Cruz. Okay, they went to the beach and they went out on a surfboard, and people were like, "What? What? What, what is that? What's going on?" <laughs> Now, now, of course, you know, this week we're heading into the Super Bowl. We're heading into, you know, Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona. And the Super Bowl has been held in California a number of times, including the first Super Bowl, which I learned a lot from your little passage about the first Super Bowl in that it was – at the Los Angeles Coliseum, which everybody knows, it was between the Green Bay Packers and Kansas City Chiefs on January fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven. But what I did not, Woo! but what I did not know was that they were talking about holding the Super Bowl there permanently. That's one thing I didn't know. Second thing was was that there were two other stadiums within the Los Angeles area that was vying for. The game itself. Tell about. Tell us about that story. Well, they, you know, uh, the Sugar Bowl, the Cotton Bowl. I mean, the NFL was looking at several venues all across the country, but uh, the city of Anaheim said they wanted it, and it, and they came along a little bit too late. But Anaheim Stadium, you know where the Angels play baseball? Yes, yeah, the Anaheim Stadium, home um, of the Angels, right. That, that was great. And that, that was brand new been at the time. That, that stadium, it was only seven months old. Brand new, The stadium, right? but I, they're good. Yeah, and, but the bid came along a little bit too late. So, you know, I think as a default, the safe choice was like, you know what, we're just going to do that. Um, instead of having it go to, let's say, Dallas or Miami or these other places. But, you know, the, the first Super Bowl, it was far from a sellout. Yeah, it was. It was you it know, was. it was on, a lot it was of on TV and everything, you know. There was a and, lot of interest, uh, you know, and, and also the yeah. Rose Bowl. Rose Bowl Stadium was yeah. was considered now, and, and there was a lot of opposition, right. which 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 I don't really understand that because you, because back then it was before UCLA started playing there on a regular basis. They didn't start playing there until eighty two, but right. they only had like one game there a year. What was wrong with another one a couple of weeks away, a couple of weeks later? You know, it was so it was just. It, I think it became a some kind of political issue and. And guys were throwing their weight around. Pasadena, yeah, they wanted the Rose Bowl. Anaheim wants it, you know. And all these people got tried to get their finger in the pie, and it, it just, you know, a lot of it was timing, and it kind of. But it was interesting. Later on, uh, of course, the Rose Bowl did host uh, a Super Bowl between the Los Angeles Rams and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yes, they, they... and that was not technically the Rams home oh, field, right. but it was the first time in Super Bowl history that you could say a team actually had a home city advantage. Right, right. And it happened a few years later with another California city, uh, San Francisco playing at Stanford in Super Bowl 19. 
Right. They played at they they played at Stanford University and the 49ers exactly. And they played Miami. So uh that was kind of cool. And then it eventually the Super Bowl made its way to San Diego and the NFL loved San Diego. They loved bringing the game here. But what happened was as you know the Chargers uh eventually left town. Our stadium was torn down. Yes. But here's the good news. San Diego State University opened up their brand new uh, stadium. It's called Snapdragon Stadium. That's right. Sponsor. Yeah. It opened last September and it seats 35,000 uh, fans. However, it's built in uh, the, when it was built, we have the capacity, the, the capability and the capacity to bring it up to 55,000 seats, which is the bare minimum the NFL requires to host a Super Bowl. So, so you're saying there's a possibility that the Super Bowl could return to San Diego with a little tweaks. It could. To Snapchat. I mean, it, it, right. it could because they could just jack up the, the ticket prices, uh, you know, and it would be the equivalent of having a game uh, at a stadium seating 75000 you know, with a different price structure. But, but they made sure, you know, the San Diego State made sure that, hey, we want to build a stadium that we can grow into. And if we can get the NFL to come back here with a Super Bowl or some other event, that'd be fantastic. So we're really happy. San Diego's really happy with the result. It's a beautiful stadium. It's a great location. Uh, it's actually was built on the uh, former site of uh, San Diego Stadium, which was later called Qualcomm Stadium. Yeah. I remember a Jack Murphy Stadium. <laughs> I remember. Well, yeah. the, I remember the yeah. Jack Murphy. Yeah, it was the San Diego Stadium was the original name. Yeah, and then they they called it. Then they changed the name after Jack Murphy died. He was the leading sports writer in San Diego. Now you have some stories here in your book that I find interesting, just on basis of time. Um, you have a lot of stories that take place in the 1800s. And one of the ones that I found interesting, September 17th, 1850, the sports, the sport of gymnastics was first mentioned in the Sacramento Bee. You know, now, now when you think of gymnastics, you don't think of it being original or, or being talked about that far in the past. When you think of sports in the 1800s, the first thing you think of is baseball. But you had gymnastics hit happening in California. You have cricket. You have um, so many other so many other different sports that that took place in the 1800s. What, what what were some of the sports that you found in your research that goes back that far into the 19th century? Oh boy, you know th there was quite a few. Um, I, I know horse racing, uh, yeah. fencing was another one. You know, weightlifting, um, things like that. So what I did was I I went back to September 9th of 1850. That's the day of uh, California gained statehood, and I started checking newspapers and other uh, documents from that day forward. And with the gymnastics one, it was three days later. I found the very first reference to any type of gymnastic activity. And that was kind of cool because it was up in Sacramento and they had a, a, a Mr. Brewer who was on the horizontal bar <laughs> performing many hard and difficult. 
<laughs> so um yeah it was kind of fun to, to look through that and um yeah there's just so many uh from that time period and uh you know like i said the more the merrier you know if i can add another five or ten if i do a revision of this book um that would be the way to go and just keep adding more sports and um fill in and you know as many things as i can now you talk about the you talk about sports in the 19th century you talk about all of the great sports i think another thing that that, that you mentioned a great deal about is when i guess you can consider the time when california became quote unquote major league when the Giants and Dodgers moved from New York and Brooklyn, respectively, and they moved to California. And the Dodgers set up residence at Chavez Ravine, but before then played at the Coliseum. The Giants moved to San Francisco, played their first few years at Seal Stadium, home of the, Sacram uh, the San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League. You know, um, that was pretty much the watershed moment for the state of California as far as like getting major league baseball. Now they had the, you know, the Rams had been in, had been in Los Angeles for like almost a decade or so prior. And you had the 49ers coming from the AAFC, you know, right. the NFL right. during that time. Um, but then you had the giant with baseball was the king of all sports at during that time in the 1950s coming to California. And one chapter in the book, you talk about, quote unquote, the fence at the Los Angeles Coliseum. Talk about that. I thought I find that, that story interesting. Uh, well, that was the, um, that was Wally Moon. I think that was Wally Moon with the, with the moon shots. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, um, you know, they had a lot of games at the Coliseum because that was the place for them to play baseball at, at the time. And then, of course, Dodger Stadium, you know, came up later and all that. But, um, you know, what was great about moving baseball. Baseball was America's sport. Football was popular in the 19. You know, 40s and all that, and the, with the 49ers and Rams and all that. But and when baseball came to California, that really gave the big push to professional sports. That that really just solidified, I think, everything. And uh, you know, one example was when <laughs> the first World Series game played in California. That was 1959. And it was at the Coliseum, 92,394 people for a baseball game. Crazy. That, I, that's still, that still is, is a record. I, I'm more than sure. 92,000 at, for a baseball game. You know, um, one thing I've always wondered about though, as a, as a fan and knowing sports history and stuff. And when the Dodgers moved to, to, to LA, they had, a baseball park in Los Angeles, Wrigley Field, not the Wrigley Field in Chicago, but there was another Wrigley Field in downtown LA. I think it was in West LA or something like that. Um, why couldn't they play there? You know, I don't, I don't recall um, why they didn't end up there. Um, but you're right that that was one of the one of the notable venues in Los Angeles for baseball. 
and the Pacific Coast League uh, had so many teams throughout California. And yeah, I mean, San you, had, Diego. You, had, you, had the, you had the original Padres. Yeah, the, we, well, we had we had the minor league Padres who played at Lane Field, which was yes. downtown San Diego on the waterfront. Yes, and then later they moved out to the valley, uh, played there for a few years. That became a shopping center, and then they finally moved to San Diego Stadium, which, um, you know, of course, became Jack Murphy and then Qualcomm. So, yeah, you know, California's got a lot of baseball venues. I mean, you could do you could write volumes just on that mm-hmm. because minor league baseball has been huge here for forever. And um, but uh, just get to get back to that World Series game with the ninety two thousand people. That's when the Dodgers beat the Chicago White Sox uh, in that World Series in nineteen fifty nine. I think they won that series. They won that series four games. I think they won that series four games to two. I think it was in six games. I could be Um, wrong. Let's see. Finish all four and four. I don't. I don't remember exactly how many wins Chicago had. Um, I do. I don't I think do it was win. a sweep. I don't think it was a sweep. But no, I, no, it, it wasn't a sweep. But the the it was the first World Series win in Los Angeles for the Dodgers. And the first championship of the California team, which was great, and then. Um, they actually cl- clinched the series on the road in Chicago. In Chicago, but right. the winning the winning players, the Dodgers, were paid the princely sum <laughs> of eleven thousand two hundred and thirty-one dollars. The first time that winning players had broken the ten thousand dollar barrier. To win the World Series. Now, <laughs> so now, now, Clayton Kershaw, he might get $10,000 a minute. I don't know. <laughs> oh, boy. And then, you, I mean, and then you, I mean, the Pacific Coast League, it was, was you know, like, like you mentioned that, you know, baseball is huge in California. You had the Pacific Coast League. You know, you had two teams just in Los Angeles alone. You had, you know, you had the, the, um, the, the Angels, the, the, the Los Angeles Angels, and you had the Hollywood Stars. Right. Yeah. And, and the Pacific Coast League at that point, was the strongest minor league in America. They were churning out major league players left and right. I mean, I mean, you know, not just Joe DiMaggio and, and, you know, it was just so many players and they played at such a high level. Yeah. yeah, Joe DiMaggio, one of the great managers that came from the Pacific coast league, like Tommy Lasorda. Right. So California does have a tr- rich tradition, and, and that's just Southern California. We haven't even got to Northern California yet with with, the, with Sacramento, the Solons, the um, the Oakland Oaks, and the San Francisco Seals, the aforementioned San Francisco Seals with Joe DiMaggio, who has pro baseball's longest hitting streak at not 56, but 61 consecutive games with a hit with when he was with the San Francisco Seals. 
That's right. That's right. And, that, and that's how that's how good he was, and so far ahead of his time. But yeah, that the, you could do just on the Bay Area or just on Sacramento, so many great athletes, um, and, and such a the great thing about California is the is the diversity, uh, you know, and um, just all of it added together. And then, you know, someone like Billie Jean King uh, is one of the greatest women athletes ever, uh, you know, growing up in Long Beach, California. Yes. And and look, you know, look at her accomplishments. And then you go on to now, you know, here we are, 2023, and there's more uh, women Olympic medalists uh, on the Team USA than there are men. The women win the majority of medals now. That's and, that's correct. That that is that is a that is a fact that most women have most of the gold medals given out at the Olympics are from female athletes. That's that's a female that's athletes and Stanford, USC, UCLA, they've won more Olympic medals than most countries. I mean, those <laughs> universities and and then the University of California, UC Berkeley, you know, great rowing program. They've had great track and field athletes. They've had all kinds of people. Now you touched um, on the word. Just, yeah, there's a, a lot of stories. You, know, you touched on the word just a few minutes ago, which is diversity, which is a, a key word for this book, because you talk a lot about the different, different sports and different disciplines. In total, how many different sports have you talked about in this book altogether? I think I ended up with 68. <laughs> and of all of those... I lost track with 68. I know I didn't make 70. I didn't make 70. But you know what? I made sure to make it more than 65 so I could brag about it on the back of the book, on the cover. Hey, guess what? There's more than more than 65 <laughs> and um, but yeah, it, it it was a blast. I tell you, I, I learned how much I did not know. And, and with when I read a book like this, Dan, it's it's a lot a lot of stuff. I read books like that just to learn something new. And, you know, as as a person who who been had been had a just a interest in sports knowledge ever since I was seven eight years old. Um, you talk about a lot of different sports that actually that does not fit into the mainstream, what you would call mainstream. And I find that very interesting. And that's what makes this book so interesting, because when you turn the page, you're going to learn something new about a sport that you really don't talk, that people don't talk about or hear about or, you know, too much, at least on a daily basis, you don't. Yeah, you know, you know, it's it's very important um, as a sports fan, historian, we want to preserve history, number one, and generally, most of the time, the, the, the large sports, the financially successful ones, get the most press, they make the most money, have the most fans, and that's the only thing that separates them. Some of these other sports are small because they haven't preserved their history, and the ones that are successful and large do a good job of preserving their history and that generates interest. And then it kind of builds from there. But yeah, I mean, we've got arm wrestling, we've got underwater hockey, <laughs> we got judo, we've got a pickleball, 
you know, it, hey, I, I don't care. I'm going to put it in. <laughs> and that's what makes this 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 book so interesting and but dan i want to thank you for coming on you've been an absolute blast uh for talking about your book and talking about the process in which you got the book started and what inspired you and everything and before you leave do you have any other projects that you may be working on or would you like to work on in the future you know i don't know I don't know if I'm going to get hit by a bus tomorrow or not, but if if I don't get hit by a bus, I would like to do a revision of this book uh, every few years. Okay. And, and and flesh it out, add more sports, and 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 see, just make it bigger and better. You know, you're. I'm always learning new things. I think it's great for the sports fan. There's always something new and exciting to discover, and. Um, I've, I've got a shameless plug. Okay. I will say <laughs> that the book is available uh, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And I also have a website. I would love to hear from sports fans. I'm at California sports astounding.com. Once again, folks, that's CaliforniaSportsAstounding.com for Mr. Dan Sisko for his book, California Sports Astounding, Fun, Unknown, <clears throat> and Surprising Facts from Statehood to Sunday. Mr. Dan Sisko, I really appreciate you coming on with me tonight, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing another revisionist copy of this book because you you got me with this. You really have. I mean, it's a, if you haven't, go pick this up because if you are a sports history fan like I am, you will dive into this book and you won't be able to put it down. I guarantee you. Dan, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dana. Thanks for having me. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Alexander Nakarada from filmmusic.io. Hello, welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports podcast where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and just to remind everyone out there, you could follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports 
at gmail.com. And right now, it is time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. And Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our weekly Top 5, where we count down the five biggest historic moments in the world of sports that are celebrating anniversaries and is being talked about wherever. And it's being brought to you by Home Field Apparel. This is my favorite time of year as the, the Super Bowl's here and college basketball season is in full swing, heading down to the conference tournaments and ultimately the final the NCAA tournament and the final four and the best way to show off your school spirit and fandom is to wear a shirt or hoodie from home field apparel they make a wide range of styles for your favorite team with what I call old school logos to not only make you stand out in the crowd but also show that you're a true fan they have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more and more each day and more schools and more styles and on the website you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen to get 20 percent off of your next purchase so give home field apparel a try as you watch your team in the tournament and possibly pull off that major upset that's home field apparel where they study your school's history traditions and legacies to create thoughtful premium apparel a must-have for the upcoming tournament once again, home field apparel, where they are fond of saying, wear one for the team. And in this episode of the program, since this is indeed Super Bowl week, as we're anxiously awaiting Super Bowl 57 between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles, we're going to do a special top five. And this top five is going to be the top five most memorable Super Bowls for me. All of them are good, if not great. For one reason or another. And so without further ado. Here is my all time top 5 most memorable Super Bowls. Sponsored by Home Field Apparel. Number 5. Super Bowl 14 Steelers versus Rams in Pasadena. Now this was the very first Super Bowl that I could remember. Watching when I was a kid, I remember watching this Super Bowl with my dad and my grandfather when I was, I think I was about six years old at the time, and watching the Rams play the Steelers. Now, the Rams were a very interesting story because they had lost their owner, their owner had passed away, and it was taken over by Georgia Frontieri, the Rams were, and they, she became like the first female owner of a major pro sports team in the NFL, maybe maybe in all the pro sports if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then the Rams had this really odd, you know, they, they, they were a perennial favorite, they were a perennial team, postseason team in the NFL during the 70s, but by this time they had a new coach and um, Ray Malavese. Uh, they were nine and seven coming into Super Bowl 14 against the Powerful Steelers and nine and seven which was the worst record of any team in Super Bowl history up to that point so they really it didn't on paper didn't seem like it was going to be a great game however it turned out to be an awesome game Rams were led by a backup quarterback named Vince Ferragamo and he was in for Pat Hayden, Pat Hayden who had gotten hurt. And of course, everybody knows the story about Jack Youngblood doing the playoffs because he gets his leg broken against the Cowboys. And he plays in the next game in the NFC Championship game at Tampa Bay, which they win 9 to nothing. Then they come to Pasadena and, and the Rams playing in Pasadena. It was the first time in Super Bowl history that a team played in its 
metro area. They didn't play at their home field, but they played in and around the city or area where they're actually from. So that was a first in Super Bowl history. And the game was really, really tight for a while. In fact, the Rams led 19 to 17 heading into the fourth quarter. And the whole time I remember watching the game, one of the things I remember was my dad kept saying to the game, watch, the Rams are going to win this game. Watch, I'm telling you, they're going to win this game. And unfortunately, of course, my dad is a big time Raiders fan and the ultimate Steeler hater because of the immaculate reception. But everybody knows that. But as it turned out, two long passes to John Stallworth was the difference. The first long pass I think it was 75 yards from Terry Bradshaw to John Stallworth to give them the lead. And then later in the fourth quarter, another long pass to Stallworth set up the the, the, the Franco Harris two-yard touchdown plunge to give the Steelers the win in their fourth Super Bowl in six seasons. So that was number five. Number four, Super Bowl 22, Washington versus Denver. Washington wins the game 42 to 10, but everybody remembers two things about this game. One, Doug Williams. Not only was he the first black quarterback to start a Super Bowl, but in that incredible second quarter, when the Redskins scored 35 points, Doug Williams throws four touchdown passes. The fifth touchdown in the quarter came on a Timmy Smith 57-yard touchdown run. And basically, they destroyed the Broncos' offense, defense. The Broncos' offense, after that happened, just could not get anything started. Again, me, watching the game with my grandfather, he was just so proud of Doug Williams and being the first black quarterback to start a Super Bowl, first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, and he did it in such dramatic and such dominating fashion. It was totally unbelievable, and that was one of the most memorable moments for me watching the Super Bowl, especially watching it with my grandfather. That performance, I remember one writer said at the end of the game that that second quarter by Doug Williams was not only the greatest performance he'd ever seen, but for that one quarter, he may have been the finest quarterback to have ever played the game. Talk about being in the zone, huh? Number three. Super Bowl 25, Giants versus Bills. Now, the only reason why I really remember this, and this is on the list, is because one thing. For that game, I had the flu. Before the game started, I had like a temperature of like 101.4 or something like that. So, I was basically watching the game, but not really watching it because I just felt so horrible. But I trudged through it and I watched it and boy, what a game that ended up being. 20 to 19 was the final Giants win this one with, you know, smallest margin of victory in Super Bowl history. Another thing that a lot of, that I really remember about the Super Bowl was that it came through, right on the heels of the beginning of the Iraq war. So there was a lot of patriotism and a lot of crazy things that was going on. Not only that, it was like one of the only Super Bowls that I remember they had like instead of the regular two week period between the championship game and the Super Bowl, they only had like one week to get everything ready and for them to play the game. With and they plus they had all kind of heightened security at Tampa Stadium because the game was in Tampa. So it was somewhat of a crazy thing, but really another memorable thing was 
the national anthem sung by Whitney Houston. That was incredible. And in my opinion, my own humble opinion, the second greatest national anthem ever sung in a, in a sports event. Of course, in my opinion, the best one, of course, is Marvin Gaye 1983 NBA All-Star Game. If you have not seen it, go check it out. It is it's incredible. And according to a lot of people, including myself, and for that matter, that was the only time anybody has ever made the national anthem sexy. If you don't believe me, go watch the video. You'll agree with me, I guarantee you. But the game, of course, came down to Scott Norwood and his missed uh, field goal from 47 yards, sealing the game for the Giants, 20 to 19, giving Bill Parcells and crew their second Super Bowl in five years, I think it was. Um, yeah, the Super first, their second Super Bowl win in five years. And solidifying the Giants as one of the great teams, not only in the decade of the 1980s, but solidifying them as one of the great teams in NFL history. Number two, Super Bowl 34, Saints versus Colts. Now, for those who listen to the program on the regular, everybody knows that even though, yes, I live in Atlanta, but I am from Louisiana and I grew up watching the Saints lose and lose and lose my whole entire life. However, on this February night, I was rooting for the Saints, and I and I figured this may happen. I remember watching the game at my mother-in-law's house in Homer, Louisiana, and I remember as we were driving to the house, my wife and I driving to her house, I noticed something. There was like no one on the streets, no one. Homer, Louisiana, if you're not familiar, is about... 40 minutes southwest of New Orleans. So it's not that far from the city. And I tell you, there was no one on the streets. I mean, no one. And this was like maybe 30 minutes before the game. No one out. It was completely empty. Everybody was at home watching the Saints hopefully pull off this incredible win. The first half didn't seem like the Saints were going to do it. The Colts came out. They came out firing. They had that great goal line stand in the second quarter, keeping the Saints out the end zone. But what turned the game around, of course, was that the call of all calls, the onside kick to start the second half. When that happened, the tables turned. And what really turned the tables, if anybody that's from Louisiana and were watching that game, they remember who they were where they were and who they were with when Tracy Porter intercepted Peyton Manning's pass and ran it back for the pick six to seal the game. One thing I remember, one thing that I will always remember and always think about when I watch Tracy Porter run that ball back against the Colts is this. My grandpa was a huge, huge, huge Saints fan. He passed away in 2002, but I know for a fact that wherever he was, he was just going absolutely insane. If he was alive, I could just hear him just rooting Tracy Porter on saying, all the way, baby, all the way, all the way. That was his catchphrase. And I could just listen to him and just hear that in my mind's eye with Tracy Porter running that ball back. That's just an incredible memory. And that's only number two. The number one most memorable moment for me 
in the Super Bowl is Super Bowl 51. The Patriots erasing a 28-3 lead to win in overtime over the Falcons. Now, I'm going to say this about that Super Bowl. I'm only saying it like to, like this. I watched the game at my <coughs> excuse me at my brother-in-law's house, surrounded by Falcon fans. When they got up 28 to three in that game, I said to them, "Y'all better keep scoring. Y'all need to play like y'all behind." Because as a Chargers fan as I am, I've seen the Patriots do this time and time and time again. Y'all need to. And when they got up 28 to three and they got the second half kickoff. I told them all, this is the most important drive in the history of the Falcons franchise. You have to score. They didn't. Okay, since you didn't score, now you got to keep them from scoring. You can't let the Patriots score and get momentum. They let them score. And the rest is history. I knew it was over when toward the end, late in the fourth quarter, when Tom Brady threw a pass to Julian Edelman, and he makes this acrobatic juggling catch that at first looked like it was an incomplete pass, but upon further review, you notice that the ball never hit the ground. When I saw that on replay, I knew at that moment that the Patriots were gonna win the game. I don't know how, but I just knew it at that point. They're gonna win this game. So. As it turned out, they forced overtime, first overtime game in Super Bowl history, and James White scores on the first possession of overtime, crushing the Falcons' dreams. Now, watching this game amid a lot of Falcon fans and some family members who are Saints fans, let's just say it got kinda testy at times. Especially during the game and especially after the game. There was a lot of hurt feelings. It was disappointing for me, but at the same time, oh, it was so much fun. Especially being someone that is a neutral observer like I was being a Charger fan. That was and that was just an unbelievable game and then just an unbelievable aftermath, I should say. Damn, I'm gonna say that those stories for another day. But that is my top five all-time favorite Super Bowl memories for me. And that will pretty much wrap up this week's edition of the top five. And coming up next on our shout-out, I'm going to send a shout-out to a specific date. That date, January 29th, 1995, which for me was the loneliest night of my life. Details of that coming up right after this. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports, Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories, and Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com 
slash sports history books. Pick up your copy today. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. And we're back, and you are listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're in... This is the shout-out portion of the program, and so right now, we're going to go right headlong into this, and I promised myself years ago that I was never going to tell this story, but since it is Super Bowl week, and I've, after going back and forth on this a few times, I decided, okay, I might as well go ahead and let this cat out of the bag, okay. This had to be the loneliest night of my life, but I got through it, thankfully, and I'm still here, able to tell about it. The night was January the 29th, 1995, exactly. I was a student at the time at Southern University in Baton Rouge. I lived, in, I lived on campus in Horace White Hall. That particular night was the Super Bowl. Super Bowl 29 to be exact between the San Francisco 49ers and my San Diego Chargers. And the powers that be, the resident assistants and the dean of the dorm decided that we're going to have a Super Bowl party for all the guys that live in the dorm. And if you had a couple friends that you wanted to invite of the opposite sex or whatever, you find bring them over. You know, you put $10. From what I remember, everybody had to pay like $10 for, you know, you're going to get wings and drinks and chips and all of that stuff. Regular Super Bowl party food, football party food. But, you know, and of course, you know, being college students at the time, somebody's going to go get some alcohol, beer, whatever. As long as the RA didn't see it, quote unquote. Then you could have it or whatever, just as long as he didn't get in trouble because, you know, he wasn't that much older than, all, than us anyway. But anyway, as the story goes, I decided, you know, the Chargers are playing in the Super Bowl. They're going to have a Super Bowl party in the lobby of our dorm. It's all set up. Me being in my early 20s at the time, I was just full of just pure arrogance, borderline cockiness about my Chargers. That year, the Chargers finished 11-5, but they had started off 7-0, best start in franchise history. They had like a little law toward the end of the season, but in the playoffs, they rallied to beat the Dolphins in San Diego. Then, thanks to a Dennis Gibson tip on the goal line, keeps Pittsburgh out of the end zone to win the AFC Championship game in Pittsburgh, a place where we never win. We're in the Super Bowl against the high-powered and highly favored 49ers. And I am just totally feeling myself. The whole two weeks, I was, according to my roommate, insufferable. You know, the Chargers, you know, they're going to win this game and everything. Then they want to have a Super Bowl party in my dorm. Oh, this is going to be great, I'm thinking. Chargers, Super Bowl win in front of all of these people is all set up. That's what I'm thinking. It's all set up. We got this. As game time approached, I decided I was going to put on my Charger gear, quote unquote. Had a navy blue 
Chargers baseball cap with the Charger helmet in the front and Chargers written in script underneath the helmet with a big, bright yellow bill. And I wearing this gray San Diego Chargers hooded sweatshirt and these uh, navy blue Adidas sweatpants with the three stripes down the side, and they were gold. So I basically looked like I was playing for the Chargers because if you remember that game, they were wearing white jerseys with the you know tr- you know the old school uh, navy blue pants that they used to wear back in the nineties. So I basically looked like a member of the team. I was just totally feeling myself. I go downstairs for the to the lobby about maybe ten minutes before the game starts. And I'm looking around. Of course, you want to look around and see who's all there. Then I notice something kind of ominous. I don't know why. I just couldn't picture what it is. It's just something just didn't feel right. So I'm looking around. I'm talking to all of these people. I see a few 49er fans there like I am dressed in 49er gear. I'm dressed in Charger gear. So I'm looking around and I notice I am the only one in this place wearing Charger gear. I am the only one that openly rooting for San Diego. Now, with my more mature self, I would have thought, okay, maybe this isn't such of a great idea. Because what if they lose? But me, being 21 years old at the time, I was like, There is no earthly way I am leaving because we're going to win this game. And this is going to be so much fun. You know, it's going to be so much fun to watch the Chargers go up and down and pull off one of the biggest upsets in Super Bowl history in front of all of these people. And I am the only one here that is carrying the flag of the Chargers. Then the game starts. 49ers get the ball first. Couple plays here and there that cross midfield. Okay, no, not too bad. Third play of the game. 55-yard touchdown pass from Steve Young to Jerry Rice. And Steve and Jerry Rice literally outruns the entire Charger secondary. All right, all right, no, no big deal. Seven nothing. Okay, no big deal. Chargers go three and out. Chargers were led by quarterback Stan Humphreys, Louisiana guy. Of course I'm rocking with him. Chargers punt the ball. 49ers get it back. Boom, boom, boom. Next thing you know, 51-yard touchdown pass to Ricky Waters. Just like that, that's 14 to nothing. I'm saying to myself, okay, guys, let's settle down. Let's, okay, we're we, we okay, we're okay. We rallied against the Dolphins. We rallied against the, 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 the Steelers in Three Rivers. We got this. By halftime, it was 28 to 10. I endured so much ribbing and so much ridicule and so much Pain and anger is just in the half. And I got another half to go. Natron Means was going up and down the sideline saying he ain't going to be embarrassed. Dude, I was embarrassed for you, bro. I was. 
and it didn't get any better. The only highlight, though, was Andre Coleman's 98-yard touchdown run in the touchdown on a kick on a kickoff return in the fourth quarter that gave us a highlight at least but as it turned out the final score was 49 to 26 49ers Steve Young famously got the quote-unquote a monkey off of his back at the end of the game but to my credit I stayed in the lobby of that dorm the whole game, watched the whole game and did not leave, refused to go back to my dorm room. I wanted to watch this. I wanted to see it through because that's when I was a, when I was a kid becoming a sports fan. That's what I was told. If you're going to rock with a team, you got to stay with them the whole time. And I did. Now, it was lonely as heck because I was the only one there that was rooting for the Chargers openly. Now, I'm sure they would have had a couple guys there that wasn't rooting for the Chargers, but they were actually rooting for the 49ers to lose. I don't doubt that not one single solitary second. But as it turned out, that was our only Super Bowl appearance. And it was the loneliest night of my life. Being in that dorm, rooting for the Chargers all by myself. And you know what? I became an even bigger fan after that happened. So go figure. And that concludes this episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Auguster, your host once again. And just a reminder, check out our Twitter, which is historically sp2 and also you could check out if you want to contact us in any way so talk about the show possible uh topics or whatever that you want to hear about you could write us at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com so without further ado thank you for joining us once again also i want to thank dan cisco for joining us for talking about his book, California Sports Astounding. We wrapped it up with a California sports team, which is the Chargers, unfortunately, losing Super Bowl 29. But, and we also talked about the Super Bowl, the, the, my top five favorite Super Bowl memories. This one wasn't so much of a great memory, but it was a memory nonetheless. I really thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate you hanging in there with me in this episode. And check us out whenever we get a new podcast. And don't forget, if you have not subscribed, please subscribe. And if you have subscribed, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a passerby on the street. Tell them to subscribe. And until next time, I'll see you soon. Have a good one. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. 
Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.